Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. Hey, Colin, I'm looking forward to bringing our audience this message today. But before we do, I want to make sure they all know this is going to be a heavy topic. Uh, this is a bit of a serious one, a little bit more serious than normal. And this is not something that our audience is unfamiliar with. This topic of uh, sexual assault prevention and response has been pushed on them probably since the day they put the uniform on. And there may be a temptation for people to not listen. And I want to challenge them, all of them, to listen. Because this is about people. It's about helping other people. And I think our guests will really hammer that home for our audience today. They'll be able to hear the passion she has in her voice. And so I'm challenging our audience, listen, pay attention. If you're uncomfortable, that's probably good because it may be challenging you in some way. And that's the only time we're going to be able to grow. Uh, so I hope you stay with us today. Yeah, can't agree more. Thanks, Reed, for putting that challenge out there to our audience. As I listened to this interview, it was impressed upon me that we talk about some really important things on this podcast. And then there's this episode, which is on a whole new level of importance. And to the point of exactly what you were saying, this really hits at the heart of what we do as officers in taking care of the people around us and ensuring that they feel safe and able to carry out the mission that they signed up for, to stay true to the oath that they have sworn and help the other airmen around them. And I am so grateful to Mia, to Captain Mia Keyschwartz for taking the time to share this all important message and can't wait to turn it over here now to her and you and, and the incredible discussion that you have. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. And with that, let's turn it over to the interview. Today, I'm joined by my friend Mia. Mia, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Reed, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so, glad you're here. <laughs> thank you. So my name is Mia Q. Schwartz, and right now I am a 14N. I'm stationed at Fort Meade in Maryland. And I was very nicely invited by Reed to talk on this show, I think a couple of weeks ago. And we had originally talked about doing an episode on intelligence officers. But after we spoke for a little bit and he explained his intent with the episode... I asked if it would be possible to instead talk about the SAPR program and the fact that officers who are not 38 boxes can actually be alternate SARCs. So that is what we're going to focus on today. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that you brought it up. It's something that Colin and I, we know it's there. We know a little bit about it, but we, we're not 
as smart on it as we could be. So I'm glad that we're going to have this venue to bring it up and help teach and educate our officer corps. A couple things for our audience as a result of the content today. If you have any kids with you or are maybe in mixed company and you aren't certain what their life experience has been, you may want to consider listening to this on your own. And this episode may also contain some sensitive content and discussions about sexual assault. And for those that may have been victims or have family members that are victims, you may find some of these discussions very difficult. So uh, please keep that in mind as we go through this episode today. So yeah, Mia, I'm glad you brought this up. Again, as you described, originally this was going to be a what is an intelligence officer and we still need to get that done. The audience has heard enough from me. They don't need to hear me talk about my experiences much more. And I think you have a good broad experience as a 14N, but that's going to be for another time because as you brought up, this is something that we have to talk about. I wish we didn't have to. I wish that as a culture and as a people and as a service and as human beings, frankly, we had gotten to a place where this was not something we had to talk about, but that's not where we are. And that makes me frustrated. It makes me upset. And as a result, we need to address this. We can't walk by it. In my short Air Force career, I've known multiple airmen who have been the victims of sexual assault from other airmen. So this is not something that is happening to such a small percentage that you're never going to hear about it. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. We can't ignore it anymore. I remember one time in particular. So at OTS, we actually have a lesson where we talk about this. It's really hard to give. We have people from the Sapper office come and train the flight commanders on how to give the lesson. We go through a series of videos. We have very frank discussions and it's incredibly difficult and taxing as an instructor in that setting. One thing we have to do is really be aware of what may be happening with our students and really pay attention to how they're feeling. And I, I remember I had a student who was clearly struggling and fortunately was able to get that person to some help. And during the day when we're giving that lesson, the whole wing knows And we've actually got additional chaplains that will come. We have additional people that can help people that have gone through this. And something I took away from that experience was how prevalent it was, much more than I had imagined. I knew it was a problem. I had no idea to the degree that a problem it was. And some in our audience may already assume that the person in my class that was struggling was a female and that was they were a victim. And this person was not those things, but it was still something that they struggled with. Yeah. So I'll tell you, having gone through that experience where I saw one of my students struggling, I was not adequately prepared to give them the support they needed. And that feeling of not being able to help someone when they need it is crippling. And I really don't want it to happen to anyone in our audience. And it's going to happen sooner than you expect. I completely agree with you. I do think it's going to happen much sooner than you expect. And I want to be very cognizant of the fact that when we think about sexual assault victims, we think of a very specific demographic. And I would like to think that we have worked pretty hard over the past couple of years to try to rectify that, because I do think that when you put a female face on sexual assault, that it negates the fact, or it takes away from the fact, rather, that males who experience this particular form of violence in their lifetime 
they also need services. They also need support. And when they don't have people modeling, talking about male victims of sexual assault, when they don't see male sarks, male victim advocates, when men aren't talking about this, it can be very isolating. And we have seen that it takes men much longer to report sexual assaults if they do report at all. And like you said, right, this can affect many people in many different ways. And just like as flight commanders and as officers in general, we shouldn't be looking at people and only seeing what's visible on the outside. We shouldn't be assuming anything about people. There may be folks in your formation who this is affecting in ways that they haven't verbalized yet. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit later where it's difficult because the military has placed mandatory reporting constraints on some personnel, uh, specifically folks in someone's chain of command. So that's another layer that of uh, complexity that we have put on top of this subject in the military. Sometimes there's confusion about exactly what you can do and you can ask and can say as an officer, specifically if you are in that person's chain of command. So it's a very complex issue, of course, and there are nuances for this issue in the military as well that I don't want to ignore because they absolutely affect how this issue is handled. And that is one of the reasons that I'm here, quite honestly. Awesome. Really glad you're here, Mia. Why don't you just give us a little bit about you? Let's hear a little bit about Mia so that as you go through, you know, everything we want to talk today, it kind of puts it in context for us. Absolutely. So I actually commissioned from the University of Wisconsin back in 2012. Uh, I studied Russian language and literature there, and I was assigned the AFSC of 14N, which is intelligence officer. Was that your first choice? It was. Awesome. So I actually joined... ROTC and plotted my entrance to the military revolving around the idea that I would be an intelligence officer no matter what service branch I was in. So it was almost like intelligence came first, service branch came later. Okay. So it's something that I always knew I wanted to do, but I will say, and I know that this is a topic for another podcast, I did not appreciate the sheer amount of opportunities that would be available to me as an intelligence officer. And I am extremely thankful to the Air Force for giving me those opportunities. Yeah. And that's definitely something we'll cover in our 14N episode, which will be coming. I don't know when. I know a whole lot of 14Ns. It's just, it's finding the right <laughs> yes, ones. It's it's finding the right ones. Um, but you're right. It's almost like joining the military twice. It is. Because not only do you have the Air Force, which yes. is a huge organization, you have the intelligence community, yes. which is a whole nother shebang Absolutely. that's also massive. Yep. All right, so we'll leave that for another time. Um, just a little forecasting, get our audience excited for it. Good. So Mia, this topic of being an advocate for those that have suffered is not something that you just came upon when you joined the Air Force. This is something you've been doing for a while. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So for me personally, it has been a long and winding road. When I initially got to college in 2008 at the University of Wisconsin, I decided that I wanted to be involved in the civilian victim advocacy organization in the local area. So I started kind of my career, I guess you could call it, as a victim advocate on the civilian side of the house. So I worked with the Dane County Rape Crisis Center that's in Dane County in Wisconsin. And everyone does advocacy a little bit different, the scheduling, how you train people. 
but I think it was a really good foundation and it kept me interested in the subject and it made me want to do more. I was pretty limited in what I could do in college. Sure. But after I graduated, there was a period of time in which I was out of the country on the inactive ready reserves and I couldn't really do much out there. But when I got back to the U.S. and I started going through technical school down at Goodfellow Air Force Base, I linked up with the SAPR program there. And because training for us intel officers is only about six months long, usually you will not see students getting certified as volunteer victim advocates. A, because I didn't meet the right requirements at that time, and B, because you're only there for six months, and it's not something that we usually do. And C, Intel school kind of takes some time. Yes, Just gonna, it definitely again, takes another episode for another time, but <laughs> I found that time to be very challenging on yes. my time. I was very busy. I had a child during that time, so that even made it more exciting. Oh, That's, again, for another time. But bottom line is you did not confront this for the first time as an Air Force member. This is no. something that you were aware of and were tracking before that. It was. Is that common? Do a lot of the mm -hmm. folks that you interact with in your circles, do they come from this from a previous life or have most of them grown up, if you will, with this in the Air Force with respect to victim advocacy, sexual assault and prevention, et cetera? So I would say that a lot of the military victim advocates that I have worked with and a lot of the military SARCs that I have worked with have started their advocacy in the military. And there are definitely benefits to both ways of coming to this particular problem set. Most of the civilian SARCs and victim advocates that I have worked with have actually worked in on the civilian side before coming to the military and working as uh, a civilian SARC or working as a sapper victim advocate or a volunteer victim advocate. It's definitely interesting to see experiences that all of those people bring to the table. It's yet another fantastic example of why diversity in background and diversity in thought is important to this issue, but many other issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of our civilian SARCs have actually come from strong community activism backgrounds. And that brings some like really innovative ways of thinking with it that I don't think you would find strictly in the military. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like we're getting into a little bit of an alphabet soup. Yes, and, um, <laughs> absolutely. I think there's roles that we can talk about. There are specific positions and then there are programs and they yes. all kind of have a bunch of acronyms so a bva volunteer victim advocate yes just define that for us and then we'll kind of go through the acronyms and kind of give our audience the right and left limits what we're going to be talking about absolutely so when i say volunteer victim advocate or bva within the context of the air force's sapper program what i'm talking about is either a military member officer enlisted or are a Department of the Air Force civilian who has decided to volunteer as an additional duty to work with the SAPR program. So they still have their usual rating chain, but when they are doing their duties as a volunteer victim advocate, they report to the SARC. And so we have a specific credentialing process for all of these people who are involved in the SAPR program. Is that just to get more people available and more reach throughout the service instead of having 
like one small office on an installation of 50,000 people? Is it just to try to get more outreach to more people? So it's definitely about outreach, but it's also about covering the hotline and making sure that we have enough advocacy services for any amount of personnel who might want to see her services. Got it. Okay. So usually what you'll see is that there is a SAPR hotline on any installation or in any wing that you might be stationed at. And the SAPR victim advocate or the SARC will make sure that that hotline is covered 24-7 by one of their victim advocates. This is something that varies from base to base. Your base might have their own procedures for it. But our victim advocates are really our front line in advocacy. These are the folks who are actually taking the calls on the hotline are, if the client desires, coming to the emergency room with the client, sitting with them while they get their sexual assault forensic exam done. Uh, If the client desires coming to meetings with the client for interviews with the police, with whatever military criminal investigative organization might be looking into this, if the client desires coming to any other meetings with them or helping them through any other process related to the sexual assault. It is a very labor-intensive job, but it's an additional duty for these folks. Yeah. So they are the backbone of our SAPR program in the Air Force. Okay. You are there for them. That's the point. Okay. Absolutely. So that outlines a position, VVA or victim advocate. We'll probably hear about that a few times. Now you mentioned SAPR, Sexual Assault Prevention Response. Is that the name of the program? It is. So that is what the Air Force calls this particular program. You'll see the nomenclature vary from service to service, which causes a little bit of confusion. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so that's the SAPR program. And then the SARC. What do you, what is that? Is it sexual assault response counselor? Coordinator. Coordinator. There it is. See? Yeah. This is why we're having this episode. Help get everybody caught up. All right. And that's a full-time hired, um, almost always a civilian. Is that accurate? So it varies from location to location, but usually what you'll see is if you are at a stateside location somewhere in the U.S., uh, you are going to have a SAPR office with a full-time civilian SARC in the rate of GS-12. You will also possibly see another civilian in that office that is called a SAPR VA. So it gets a little confusing because it's a SAPR victim advocate, but we also have volunteer victim advocates. But the SAPR victim advocate is a specific full-time job, usually in the rate of GS-11. And they are focused on training their volunteer victim advocates, making sure that they're fully equipped to deal with any clients that they might have, setting up the hotline, making sure that that aspect of the response is good to go. And for the SARC, they coordinate, right? Got it. So they work on case management. They run the case. They co-lead the case management group that meets once a month to go over these cases. They're much more into the programmatics. But of course, they can also take clients themselves if they so choose. And these duties can definitely vary from location to location, depending on the individual skills of the SAPR victim advocate and the SARC. But like you said earlier, SARC is a full-time position. You will see deputy SARCs, D slash SARCs, that are active duty uh, officers in the Air Force. So okay. those are usually 38 foxtrots. Those are force support officers usually. Okay. If you as 
an officer in a different AFSC can get your functionals to release you for a tour of duty as a SARC, then you can absolutely be a SARC as long as you go through the same credentialing process that everyone else has to go through, but it's less common. Okay. So being a victim advocate or a volunteer victim advocate is an additional duty, but it's possible for you to actually get an assignment or, you know, a special duty tour perhaps is another way of calling it. So it is. Uh, it's possible, and this is mostly, I'm now I'm talking about the 38 Foxtrot crew for the okay. support officers. Uh, it's possible to be a deputy SARC, or it's possible to be, the title is SARC. But when we're talking about the credentialing process for Got both it. positions, it's the same. It really depends on the like structure of the SAPR office for each particular installation. Okay. Yeah. If we could give like a, the most common denominator that, you know, the situations is going to cover most installations, most situations where people are on the installation, there's going to be an office. Yes. And that's going to be called the Sapper office. Yes. And that's where the program Sapper is exactly. headquartered. Yeah. At that location, you will have a SARC, yes. the senior coordinator for sexual assault and prevention. Mm-hmm. And then a series of deputies, volunteer victim advocates and victim advocates and other positions to help the program run well. Yes. Okay. That's, I think that's a good, like, what is the alphabet soup that is this program? And I will say it does get a little confusing. And quite honestly, when I first joined the program, I was extremely confused by a lot of these acronyms. I had to read the AFI several times to actually understand what all the acronyms actually meant in real life. Sure. You've mentioned an AFI a couple of times. Do you happen yeah, to know which one it is? Absolutely. So this is AFI 90-6001. So that is the Air Force's governing guidance for the SAPR program. Excellent. And we'll try to link that in the show notes for our absolutely. audience. Very good. I think that's a really helpful rundown. You know, we talked about the positions, the office, kind of the whole thing. And I think it's really important for our audience you know, I don't need you necessarily to understand all the intricacies, but I need no. you to know that there is a program, yes. there is a person, and you can find these folks. Absolutely. When I taught at OTS, one thing I would always hammer at them is you may not know all of the legal things that you're going to confront as a flight commander or a DO or a squadron commander, but what do you need to know? Call JA. Yes. That's what you need to know. Absolutely. And so this, we definitely want to hammer that as we go throughout this. We do want them to get more understanding and knowledge. But we also need you to say, oh, this is where my knowledge and experience ends. I need to call someone. Yeah. Yeah. We really want to make that clear. Yeah. Awesome. That's a fantastic point. I don't want anyone to feel like they have to memorize all of this. It took me years to get a handle on the intricacies of the AFI. I just went on a four-month deployment. I came back and I'm relearning some things. And there was some additional guidance published that I still am absorbing, right? It's constantly changing. You don't need to worry about all those intricacies as long as you know who to call. Yeah, outstanding. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that. So you've been to multiple installations, some OCONUS, some CONUS, and you've also done a deployment. If there's a leader out there who's leading in one of those variety of inf- environments or there's someone who, heaven forbid, is a victim, yes. how is the program different with a CONUS installation, with an OCONUS installation, with a deployment? Like, how, how does that work? So ideally, what should be happening at every installation or deployed location worldwide that the Air Force has any purview over is that there is a 
presence or at least a way for victims of sexual assault to get advocacy. In very austere deployed locations, this can get a little bit more complicated because you won't always have certified victim advocates at deployed locations. I mean, very forward deployed locations, even at larger bases like Bagram and Ali al-Salim, Al-Udid, Inserlik, you will likely have a full-time SARC at that location. So you can deploy in those positions? You can. Okay. And that is actually something that it's a very interesting opportunity for victim advocates who are already certified and want to go on one of these deployments because you can be just a volunteer victim advocate in an AFSC that has nothing to do with sexual assault prevention and response. And you can go on one of these deployments if you're able to. The deployments themselves, I have heard that they're very rewarding. I myself, while I was at Inserlik, I was an alternate SARC and an acting SARC for a fairly long period of time. Technically, Inserlik is in a combat zone tax exemption, but there is a difference, I think, between being in Turkey and being in Afghanistan. Yeah, I was just going to say the installations you listed are, I mean, big. Yes. Many, many thousands of airmen, soldiers, sailors, and Marines stationed at those locations. We can certainly understand situations in some fob somewhere small in the mountains of Afghanistan where getting these types of services is going to be a lot harder. Yes, absolutely. And that is something where, because Sapper is a locationally based service, so for Inserlik, for example, we had responsibilities for GSUs all over Turkey. So we had to ensure as a SAPR office, that we made sure that all of those locations had access to sexual assault prevention and response services. It will look different depending on what location you're at. But the goal of the program is that as an airman, no matter where you are in the world, you have access to these services. We have not always been able to execute the intent of the AFI in that regard, but that is something that we very aggressively try to do. Awesome. Let's change pace a little bit. We've talked about kind of the overall structure. We've talked a little bit about some of the roles and positions in the program. Let's talk a little bit about the faces involved in this program. Absolutely. So Mia, you're a woman and you're talking about being a VVA about this APRA program. I feel like that tends to be the face of this program. And we talked about it earlier on in the episode. We tend to, right or wrong, probably wrong, associate victims of sexual assault as females being victims from male perpetrators. Yes. Are there male VVAs? Are there male... Let's just address that head on, that this is not that cut and dry. Absolutely. So I have personally met uh, quite a few male SARCs, both in the Air Force program and in other services programs. I have also met and helped train quite a few male victim advocates. On the whole, though, anecdotally, I can say that usually most of the folks that I work with in this program are ladies. And I think that there is sometimes still a perception out there that for some reason or another, women are better suited to these positions. And on the whole, I don't support making generalized statements like that because every individual has different skills. And I absolutely think that it's important for men to be involved in this program because having that representation on the SAPR staff 
can absolutely make a difference in whether or not someone feels comfortable making a report or feels comfortable talking about their own experience. And and that's the whole point, right? Yes. The point of the program is to help people. Yes. And people are complicated. They're confusing. They're multifaceted and fascinating. And what will make one person be able to take that incredibly brave step to get the help they need, it may be down to that person doesn't look like me. Yes. And so that's why we want to get that message out there. Absolutely. And something that we talk a lot about uh, in advocacy circles is making sure that you are every single step of the way asking your client, are you comfortable with this? Is this what you want? And sometimes, depending on the person, they might want a male victim advocate. They might want a female victim advocate. They might want something in particular. And I want to be able to have such a diverse staff that we are able to provide them with whatever they are most comfortable with. Because you're right, we are a victim-centered program. We are really here to make sure that they have access to services that they might need to make use of. So it's an interesting dichotomy because I think that there is definitely room to debate exactly what the point of the Air Force's staffer program is. I think that if you read through the AFI and if you listen to the congressional hearings and all the debates that led us to the point where the DOD actually stood up a staffer program, Mm -hmm. A debate can be made that this was actually forced onto the military and that the reason this program was created was to satisfy a requirement. I think we need to own that. And I don't think that's wrong. I think things like racial integration happened because it was a requirement. Yeah. Does that make it any less right? I don't think it makes it any less right. So it still is something that is uncomfortable that we must point out. Absolutely. So I think that's okay. So... Thanks. I, I think it's important that we address, again, these, these biases that we have, right? Yeah. That women are the only victims, that men are always the perpetrators, yes. and and they're all heterosexual in, in get encounters, right? Yes. But that is not the situation. And one thing we haven't addressed is other features of the human person, right? And one being race. Race is something that we're confronting right now as a service and as a nation. How have you seen that play a role? in the response of the program or the coordinators or the victim advocates or the clients? Like, how has that played a role? So I do think for certain clients that I have worked with, it absolutely has had an effect on how they have been treated. And for these specific situations that I'm drawing on to tell you about this, I'm thinking of some of the clients I've worked with as a civilian victim advocate where I was sitting in an emergency room with clients. I'm thinking of several clients that I worked with who were Black and how they were treated by local law enforcement that was different than how I saw my white clients treated when I was sitting with them in the emergency room. So I don't like making assumptions about why some of the things that may have been said to them were said. I absolutely want to state that police officers and law enforcement are critical partners in addressing this issue. And with that being said, a lot of the times my clients don't look like what we call the perfect victim. 
when we watch episodes of Law and Order SVU and when we watch media depictions of what sexual assault victims look like and act like, that is not always how it plays out in real life. And sometimes that can cause an interesting cognitive dissonance in personnel who are responding to the incident, as well as personnel who hear about the incident from the victim themselves or through the natural reporting process. And it can be difficult for people to reconcile the fact that this victim looks different than what they were expecting, is acting different from what they were expecting on the civilian side of the house. I have definitely worked with clients who had substance abuse problems, who uh, were hostile, who were combative. And it's difficult to tell sometimes if someone is being treated badly because of their race or because of some other thing. And I, as a white person, am probably not very qualified to interpret what racism is to begin with. But I definitely think that... There is room to talk about the intersectionality of sexual assault and racism in terms of how we can make sure that our clients, regardless of their race, are treated with dignity and respect and are afforded the same options that anyone else would be. Absolutely. And can we extend that same respect and value for that person to almost any category? Sexual identity, sexual preference, gender, age, race, right? All those things play a critical role in making you who you are and shape the lens through which you experience life and these awful, awful situations. Absolutely. And each person's individual identity is shaped by groups that they are a part of, by their own individual experiences. And each of those identities does come with some unique reporting barriers and some unique obstacles when that person is a victim of sexual assault. And we try to educate ourselves and professionalize ourselves in the victim advocacy community to make sure that we are cognizant of some of the barriers that members of different groups and different genders and different sexual identities and sexual preferences might have because we want to make sure that we meet that client where they're at and we don't add any additional layers of trauma or judgment or any other barriers to this person's experience because they're already going through one of the most traumatic things that a person can go through. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Mia, someone's identified that this is something that they want to be involved with. How does that start? What does that process look like? Absolutely. So the first step that I would recommend to you is getting in touch with your local SARC and asking them, hey, are you open to accepting and training new volunteer victim advocates? And if the answer is yes, there are going to be a flurry of documents that you need to fill out in order to make that happen. One of the things that the Air Force requires its victim advocates to do is go through a 40-hour training in order to submit for credentialing. So this is something that can take a little bit of time, which is why I really encourage you to get with your local SARC or local SAPR office and tell them as soon as possible that this is something you're interested in because those 40-hour trainings usually don't happen very frequently 
something that takes uh, quite a lot of planning and effort. So perhaps once or twice a year, the Sapper office will host one of those. And that is a requirement for you to become a credentialed volunteer victim advocate. Then to maintain your currency, I think you stated it was a training every two years. You have to stay current. So every two years, you have to resubmit your credentialing package with 32 continuing education units, 32 hours of some kind of training or professionalization that you have done. And that specifically calls out ethics training. We are required to do that as a specific subject. Okay. But the beauty of this system is that you can PCS and you still have that certification. When you get to your next duty station, you as a victim advocate will link up with your SARC say, yes, I do want to continue to be involved in the SAFR program, or if you don't, that's okay as well. That SARC will give you some local training before picking up the hotline and fulfilling usual victim advocacy duties. But it's a highly transferable and portable skill. That's good. I'm, I'm guessing there's probably going to be like some state and local law training yes. that's going to happen because everywhere is a little bit different. Everywhere is a little bit different. Okay. So that is something that should be included when the Sarker Sapper victim advocate in that Sapper office trains their incoming already credentialed victim advocates from a different location. Because like you said, each state has slightly different requirements and we want to make sure that our victims understand that so that they understand how their clients' experiences may be different than the previous state or location that they came from. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. So what other things do you want folks to know kind of about like the overall nuts and bolts of the system? Are there any like big topic issues that will help us understand the way it's structured? We've talked about the positions, about the program, kind of about the faces that are involved. Anything you want to cover before we get into the, okay, so what now? So there are a couple of resources that I would like to point out that are available to anyone who wants to learn more about this program. And I want to point out the fact that we have a website called sapper.mil. This is a place that you can go to find all of the studies that have been done over the past couple of years on prevalence and reporting in the DOD. You can also go there to find policy documents But my favorite part of that website is that you can find the commander's 30-day unrestricted report checklist there. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So this is not a mandated document. This is a recommendation. But I love talking about this document because I think it's relevant for officers regardless of rank. You can look at it and kind of get an understanding of at least the initial recommendations for commanders of airmen who have filed an unrestricted report. And you don't have to be a commander to look at this. You can look at it to get an understanding of what you might someday need to do and back up from that and try to think of, okay, what do I want to know in order to prepare myself for this situation so that I can really do right by my troops and make sure that I feel comfortable enough with this subject to at least go through this checklist and know what these words mean. Yeah, that's excellent. I remember... After we did the training at OTS, and I I keep going back to that because it's the first time that I felt like I was getting on the leadership side of this issue instead of the briefings you get every year and understanding as a member of the Air Force that the program is there and available. And those are all good, but it becomes different when you are now a leader 
Yes. And you have to take action and help others. Absolutely. Um, we had the class and they gave us a folder. It was teal in color, which is the color of awareness for, for sexual assault. And it was chuck full of really good things, you yes. know, checklists and numbers and information. And I remember thinking, I'm really glad I have this little folder Perfect. and I kept it in a very specific spot yes. in my desk so that at any time, heaven forbid, I was confronted with something in my cube. I heard a lot of crazy stuff in my cube. Oh, Thankfully, my nothing in this realm, but you never know when someone's stressed, when they're away from family for the first time and they're being told that they're, they look like a smash bag of donuts. You know, yeah. they tend to tell you things yeah, and uh, confess and all the, I mean, yeah. crazy stuff that was going on. Anyway, I was always glad I had that. And yes. it's good to know that there's even a more specific thing for commanders available Absolutely. on that website. Yeah. Um, for our listeners, we're definitely going to get a bunch of these resources and put them in the show notes so that you have access to them yes. um, as a quick little resource. Awesome. So now we're going to start getting into some challenging questions yes. uh, for some folks. Something that is really important to me is believing in a system. I have experienced a lot of failures. It's been my experience that people tend to fail, but I need to have, believe in the system. So let's talk about that. Is this working? You've worked with over 100 people since 2014. Yes. Is it working? Yeah. So as a victim advocate and as a SARC, I see my primary duty as trying to ensure that a client who comes to me has a positive reporting experience. Every person who has a role in an unrestricted report has a different goal and a different set of responsibilities. Can we talk about restricted versus unrestricted Absolutely. again? Because this is a unique feature of our military system. Yes. That, as I understand, is not necessarily always present in civilian yeah. experience. It varies from state to state based on right? exactly what the mandatory reporting requirements yeah. are. So yeah. let's really briefly, let's address restricted versus unrestricted. Absolutely. And because I, I hear you, I know what you're saying. Yeah. But maybe some of our audience may not. So Absolutely. pick which one you want to go first. Absolutely. So I'm going to go ahead and start with restricted reporting. So if a client elects to make a restricted report, the form that they sign is the same. But what we're going to do with this particular report is it's not going to trigger an investigation. It's going to remain confidential in the fact that the squander commander or respective commander of this member will not know that they have filed a report of sexual assault. But as the Sapper office, we are still able to refer them to mental health services, chaplain services, give them a victim advocate. We can help them get a special victims counsel if they would like. This is an option if the client really just does not want an investigation yet or possibly ever. And this option is available for our folks because we... I think in general recognize that not everyone wants that investigation. And, and I think that's the, the key that we kind of want to chime in on the restricted report exists for the victim. Yes. That is the purpose is yes. to help them get the, the, the help they need with trying to, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but trying to minimize the amount of extra scrutiny 
or public displays that could come along with an official investigation. Is that inappropriate or am I? So I think that a good way of describing it would be, because we like to refer to both of these options as there are still going to be specific people who are aware of your report when you make an unrestricted report. So it's still going to be held in confidence, but more people are going to know who need to know. And those people are going to be conducting some kind of an investigation. But like you said, on the restricted side of the house, our goal is to make sure that the victim has access to the resources that they might need to recover from this particular incident. Got it. Okay. All right. So let's contrast that with an unrestricted report and specifically highlight the key things as members of the profession of arms that are different than might be for the average civilian who uh, is a victim in this circumstance. Absolutely. So when we're talking about unrestricted reporting, specifically in the military, specifically in the Air Force, this is a situation in which if an airman decides to come forward and state that they were sexually assaulted and they want an investigation to occur, they can speak with the sapper office about that and sign the same DD-2910 that they would if they had made a restricted report, but they would check the unrestricted option. And additional personnel will be notified of this report and an investigation will be triggered. So airmen can actually, if they so choose, go directly to OSI, go directly to someone in their chain of command to trigger this investigation. I also want to point out that while the SAPR program absolutely exists, victims of sexual assault do not have to use it. There are some programmatic and administrative things that the SARC will have to help the squadron commander through for a situation like this. But if a victim decides they don't want victim advocacy from the SAPR program, that's perfectly fine. And I have seen that happen. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks for running through that. I think now as we talk about, you know, is it working, right? That's the question that we were addressing and I still want to cover. It helps our audience maybe if they didn't already appreciate those differences between a restricted and versus unrestricted. Let's walk through a hypothetical. Let's let's be completely hypothetical here. But you have an airman who's been the victim. They go to their supervisor. Yes. And they tell them, I've been assaulted. Yes. That triggers a very specific pathway that we have to go down. And people are going to know. And that's when you refer to the unrestricted. Yes. Right? And and people have to understand. They have to be involved. Um per AFI, per legal instruction. Yes. And that is something that when I and my colleagues teach FTAC, teach newcomers, teach any of these trainings that we give to either brand new airmen, people new to an installation, or people who just need their annual SAPR training, we want to be very specific in explaining who an airman can go to and state that they were sexually assaulted and still maintain their restricted reporting option. But we also have to counterbalance that with the fact that we want people to get help, right? So 
we need to work within the confines of the guidance that we have, because like you just stated, if an airman goes to their supervisor and states, I have been a victim of a sexual assault, that is one of those fairly rare situations that is actually quite cut and dried. That supervisor absolutely has a responsibility to push that up to their commander and make sure that that unrestricted report is triggered. And there's a little bit of... uh, programmatic difference between a third-party report, an independent investigation, and an unrestricted report. For the purpose of this podcast, I'm just going to refer to all of them as unrestricted because they will result in some kind of investigation. But to your point, it's a balancing act because that troop may have a supervisor that they are completely comfortable with and that perhaps that supervisor is the only person that they're comfortable with at a particular assignment. And this is why we give training on this Yeah, because it is absolutely possible for that troop to come into that supervisor's office, for that supervisor to get a sense that they're about to hear something or something's about to happen and to very gently, delicately stop the troop from saying anything that limits their ability to make a restricted report yep. and redirect them to the SAPR office and that And end. still care for yes, the member. Absolutely. That's the key. And, and I hope that's something our audience is picking up. I can see the passion in your face <laughs> and hear it in your voice. And I hope our audience is feeling that as well. And we really want to convey that to all of you. It's about people. It's about taking care of people Yes. in probably their darkest moments. Yes. You have got to get good at this. I don't know how to convey it more clearly, but this is something you must be good at. This is our job. Yes. If we do nothing else but care for people, we will have a successful Air Force officer career. It is absolutely all of our responsibilities as officers, as NCOs, as frontline supervisors to make sure that we know at least enough about this subject and many other subjects that are also difficult to talk about and difficult to address as well to be prepared. And we don't, like I said, we don't expect anyone to be experts on this. That's why we have a team of people who are here to help you with this. And that is something that I want to make clear is that this program can't succeed without the assistance of everyone. This program can't succeed without getting victim advocates from across whatever wing you're located in to sign up, to volunteer, to be this very time-intensive additional duty. And it can't succeed without frontline supervisors talking about it during initial feedbacks, without commanders addressing it during all calls, without flight commanders addressing it with their troops. And no, it's not something you have to talk about all day long, every single day. But my personal opinion is that everyone can make a difference by making it clear to their troops within their sphere of influence that this is something that won't be tolerated in their formation. And you can absolutely make a difference by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Again, right. This is not an area where you can shelve the study and the effort and just study up right before the game, so to speak. This is something you have to train and be ready for. This is not casual involvement in being good at helping your people is a fail. That, that Those things are not possible. You cannot be casually involved in helping your folks. Awesome. All right. So two more questions and then we'll let you go. Mia, this has been really 
important, and I'm glad that you've been sharing this with our audience, is the program working. It feels like I hear no good news. And as an airman and a person, I get angry and frustrated. Uh, I have daughters of my own. I have a son of my own. I have a wife. And I just hear a lot of bad news. And as a person who feels a, a role as protector in my home, it's hard for me to look at the world and think that I'm sending them off to a great place. Yeah. Is it working? So it's a very complex question to unpack. I wish that I could give a simple answer and I wish that I could say blanket across the board. Yes, it's working. Everything is great. But what I can say is that for each individual client, we try to understand exactly what they want to get out of reporting. For the clients who file restricted reports, they are able to maintain that confidentiality. They are able to get access to mental health services, to chaplain resources. They are able to have a victim advocate and a special victims counsel. So in that regard, within the confines of the AFI and within the confines of what that client wants, there is success, absolutely. On the unrestricted side of the house, when an investigation is opened, It depends on how you define success. So we try very hard, I think, as an advocacy community, and I don't speak for everyone in this regard, but I try personally to make sure that a client does not look to the results of either a trial on the civilian side or a military trial, a court martial, to validate their experience. Because from my perspective, as soon as that client comes to me and tells me I was a victim of sexual assault, we say, yes, you were. And we're going to file some paperwork and we're going to get you some assistance and we're going to try to help you recover from that. But I try to make sure that that client doesn't look at a jury verdict or a court martial verdict of guilty as the only measure of success. Because if that is the only measure of success, I think that you can't say that across the board, there is success right now. On the other side of this argument is, are we doing justice by the people accused of sexual assault in the military? And this is where I think that I can say for everyone involved, this is why we have a system and a process for this. This is why everything is very regimented, laid out in the AFI. There are specific procedures for exactly what which individuals do when they learn about a sexual assault. And whether or not the results are positive for the client or positive for the subject, the process still exists. And the fact that there is a process, that's a win. But I don't think that... I can say that every client that I've worked with has been satisfied with the outcome of the legal process. Sure. Uh, It's actually an interesting data point that you can look at some of the DOD's surveys on as to whether or not clients have been satisfied with the program, with victim advocacy. Mm -hmm. We do surveys for that as well. I think it's a very difficult thing to get a solid answer on. I would love for everyone to have a positive experience at the end of this after going through 
a horribly traumatic situation to be able to turn around and say, my reporting experience was positive. I would recommend it to everyone else. Yeah. And that is one of the goals of our program as well, yeah. is that everyone who does report has a positive experience, whether it's restricted or unrestricted, that they felt supported and that they got what they wanted out of that reporting experience. Yeah. To be fair, that was a hard question, right? <laughs> we we weren't going to not pull any punches today. You know, we, we wanted to get after this. It's so important that every member know that this exists, that it's there, and that we're there to take care of our people. Absolutely. So important. All right, Mia, last question before we get to just kind of wrapping some things up. What's the one thing you want people listening to this to take away from today? The one thing that I would like new officers and officers who have been in the Air Force for a long time to know is that this program can't succeed without your involvement. This is something that can't happen in a vacuum. And this also goes for our NCOs, our flight chiefs. This goes for our chief master sergeants and our first shirts. This program is built on the people who are involved in it that bring passion with them, that bring hard work with them, and who take care of their airmen and who make sure that this AFI is executed in a way that carries out its intent. And that's something we try to get across in SAPR trainings. And I know that the SAPR program, I think, has a reputation for giving trainings that aren't necessarily helpful. I think that it's something that we have tried very hard to make sure continues to improve every year. But bottom line is that we just can't do it alone. A sapper office and a wing is usually one or two full-time people with a handful of volunteer victim advocates across the wing. And that is not enough people to enact the kind of societal and culture change that we really need in order to completely attack this problem head on. Thanks, Mia. So as we wrap up our recording today and in, in our interview um, with Mia talking about the SAPR program, we wanted to kind of delineate. Usually we say, how can they get in touch with you if they have any questions? But we want to draw some very distinct lines on this one. If you have questions about the program or about how to join or about how to get involved or big programmatic type questions, Mia, you've already volunteered. You're absolutely happy to take those questions. They can get in touch with us through our Gmail or on our website, and we're happy to push you that information. However, we want to make it very clear that if you have a report to make about a sexual assault or a violent incident or abuse or harassment or anything of that nature, we do not want to be the forum for that in order to ensure that you can get the best care that you need. So Mia, what's the right way for someone who's been a victim to start reaching out. Absolutely. So what I would strongly recommend is that anyone who has been a victim of sexual assault, if you would like to make a report or if you would just like to talk about what your reporting options are, please reach out to your local SAPR office. And if you don't know who those folks are, that's okay. You should be able to find them on DOD Safe Helpline. Uh, sometimes you can also just Google it as well. But each 
WhatsApp or Office is supposed to advertise their services on DOD Safe Helpline. So that's a great safe bet to getting in touch with those local folks who can really help you out where you're at. Great. Thanks. Really appreciate it. And again, we just want to make sure and draw those clear lines. And the purpose and intent is to help people. Absolutely. So we need to get after this. We all need to be involved. It's all our responsibility. And uh, Mia, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much for having me, Reed. Wow, Reed. I'm just floored by the gravity of this issue and the massive impact that it can have on an individual, on a unit, on an entire Air Force, or even a nation. I mean, you guys talked about how the the SAPR program came about because of a congressional mandate, because the the issue of sexual assault was so widespread in the military and and that's what it took to finally start addressing it, right? Yeah. And because of that mandate from Congress and the startup of the the Sapper program, we have seen some pretty amazing changes since it was created to include our time in the Air Force. However, I also know that because it is so important and it gets addressed so frequently that there's this tendency among members of the Air Force to not pay attention anymore and grasp how truly important this really is, you know? Yeah, I do. And I think that's a human response when you don't have an emotional connection to the experience. And so I I think it's important for us to recognize that, but also recognize the other side of it when there is an emotional connection to this type of violation of human dignity the intensity of it is overwhelming in ways those that haven't gone through it i'm not sure can fully appreciate you know i I relayed the message you know about the story i had as an instructor watching a student clearly struggling through the lesson that we taught on this and that was as close as i have come personally to dealing with this situation as a leader and as a person. And I really want our audience, and I said it in the interview, I want them to not feel as unprepared and overwhelmed as I did at that time. So now, Colin, I think we want to talk about some ways to help us not feel so helpless, to help get us into a better place so that we can address some of these things instead of just being overwhelmed by the gravity and the seriousness of the situation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, first up, let's just say how awesome it is that Mia is able to have that intense level of passion and empathy and care for this program, that there are people like her across our nation, across our Air Force, that are volunteering their time because they are not required to do this in order to get after this issue. But let's be honest here. Two full-time positions at every wing in the SARC and the Sapper VVA are not going to be able to solve this. They haven't been able to solve this. Much of their time is focused on the response side 
of sexual assault, which is good. We want them focusing their attention on taking care of the victim, taking care of people who want more information, who, who want to get additional training and get involved, right? But the solution, the prevention, you know, the sexual assault prevention part of this, that responsibility falls on you, it falls on me, and everybody who is listening to this show, right? But how? How are we going to do this, Reed? What steps need to take place at the individual level to get this thing taken care of? Yeah, because it does us no good to be overwhelmed by the topic and throw up your proverbial hands. Well, I, I can't fix this. Right? That's, that's an unacceptable attitude. And that's not who we are as airmen. That's not who you and I are. So we're going to try to lay out a framework to actually do something. So Colin, why don't you lead us off with framework we want to discuss? Yes, sure. So this comes from change management theory, borrowing it from a company called ProSci. They are a change management company and no, we are not being endorsed by them or supported in any way, but they have great information that can help us as officers and as leaders in the Air Force in all things change management. But we're going to apply it here to the topic of sexual assault prevention. So they have a model called ADCAR, and that is an acronym that helps us to better understand the process of individual change. Because change at a societal level, as an institutional level, happens one individual at a time. Each person has to go through this process on their own in order for the institution to change as a whole. Okay, So ADCAR, Alpha Delta Kilo Alpha Romeo starts with the first A being awareness. Now, Reed, what do you think of when I say the term awareness? I think it's recognizing that change needs to occur. And I also think that that recognition is transient. I think sometimes with these big problems, we may think that they are, quote, already taken care of, or that quote, only happened in the past. Uh, one that comes to mind is racial injustices and racial tensions. I think it's too often portrayed that the civil rights movement happened and racial disparity was fixed. It's not. It's a continual effort. Yeah, for sure. Awareness is a diminishing asset. It will decrease over the course of time unless you continuously come back to it, which is why we have this regular training. But awareness obviously is not enough. We got to do more. So the next step is desire. There must be a desire to support the change that we are now aware of. And where does that desire come from? That desire for this problem specifically hopefully comes from the recognition that we are dealing with our brothers and our sisters at arms and that there is a foundation of trust between us that we want to uphold, sustain, and even grow if possible, right? Yeah. You talked in the episode about how sexual assault is one of the most egregious and most offensive ways to destroy trust. And so the desire to fix this problem 
needs to come from that recognition that we want to avoid the destruction of trust, that we want to support our brothers and our sisters and foster that culture that is going to enable us to be most effective at carrying out the mission and fulfilling the oaths that we have sworn. Yeah, totally agree. You know, when you think about change management, you think about being a leader. This may be one of the hardest steps for leading an organization through change is getting them to want to change. And this can be with any topic. You know, if you're the the leader of any organization, getting them to enjoy the experience that you're going to push them through, that is next level leadership. And that's tough. And I I think this is especially hard. You have to communicate the importance of this. Yeah. I mean, people in general are resistant to change, but sometimes there are things like this where change is absolutely necessary and we all have to get on board with it. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So... That is the D, desire. Next, we get to knowledge. Knowledge of how to change. Now, Reed, we just went through this great interview with Mia. We've all been through these trainings before. We have knowledge of how to change, right? Or do we need more? Yes, I think people generally know Uh, But I also think they need to be reminded. Just like you said, awareness is transient. Knowledge is also transient. You don't learn something one time, then it's forever burned up there. You have to remember. You have to be reminded. And I also think that the situation can change with your age, with your experience, with your position, uh, with your location, with the people you work for, the people you work with. All those things will change the situation such that something that you've learned and tried and applied successfully in the past may not work this next go round. So I do think knowledge is something we, we have to get more. We have to get more of. That's why you have BVAs. That's why you have SARCs to help give some of that knowledge uh, to you and, and the folks that you serve. Yeah. Don't fight the knowledge. Don't fight the learning that's going to help you be more effective in helping your people. 100%. So that brings us to the next A. It's one thing to have awareness and desire and knowledge. It is now a completely different thing to have ability, to demonstrate the actual application of that knowledge and the desire to support the change. And especially when it comes to this particular problem of sexual assault and the prevention of it, some people feel like they have no ability to prevent it. That if they do speak out, that it's going to negatively impact them as a victim or as a witness or as someone who is somehow involved in this activity. So how do we address that, Reed? How do we provide the ability to our people to get after this problem and participate in the prevention of sexual assault. I think that boils down to the kind of culture we create in the organizations that we lead. That's, I think, the bottom line. What will you walk by? What will you tolerate? Are you going to let that inappropriate comment slide because you want to be accepted 
by the guys. You know, you know, say it's the culture and the feeling that you create by the way you interact with people is what's going to be responsible for them feeling like they have an ability to act. If you're constantly coming in from the top rope and stopping them from coming up with ideas or taking action or being, you know, having initiative of their own, I'm not certain that they are going to feel empowered to take personal risk to say something. And that's our job. The culture of the organizations we're in, that is up to us. Yeah. And what kind of culture are we talking about? Let's put some names on it. You know, a, a culture of trust. Because that goes back to what we were saying earlier, that we all come into the military with this foundation of trust based on our common experiences, common training, and our common desire to support what we do as, as an Air Force, right? We need to create a culture where trust is the norm. That is the baseline. That is, that is the default of what we do. But that isn't the only culture that we want. We also want a culture of listening, a culture of mutual support. What are some others that come to your mind, Reed? A genuine interest in someone and their well-being. That's, I think, a really important one. If you come into work every day, you get the typical, hey, good morning, how are you? And there's nothing else, no connection. It has to be more. People have to believe truly that you care for them, that you are genuinely interested in them, their hopes, their desires, their dreams, their family, them. They have to believe that. And it has to be real. It has to be genuine. Yeah, for sure. And then the last one in this model is the R, reinforcement. That it's not enough to go through the, these steps the one time because just like awareness desire knowledge are transient. So are the results of going through this process. You have to re-engage with this on a regular basis. You have to reinforce that culture. You have to reinforce that trust, reinforce that desire to prevent sexual assault in all of its forms, anywhere that it happens at any time. You have to be present and engaged in that frequently in order to eventually get to the point where this is going to be solved. And we can finally say our Air Force is sexual assault free. Yeah. And, you know, I want to make sure our audience knows that we aren't proposing this like the checklist to solve this problem, right? We are simply proposing this as something to do instead of sitting back and admiring the problem. Because I'm kind of sick of that with a lot of things, Colin. I'm kind of sick of people stepping back and pointing at a hard problem and going, ooh, that's a hard problem. That's not who we are. We don't just sit back and admire problems. So that's why we're proposing this as a method for you to at least get the wheels turning upstairs about how you can do something because we have to. Yeah. And maybe the, that first step for you is going to be to reach out directly to your local SARC, your local VVA, and just get information. Learn who their name. Let's start there. Find out who is the SARC and the, the Sapper VA that, there at your installation. Or if you're maybe a, a cadet uh, at, in ROTC at a university, they have 
a very similar program, I'm sure, at the university level in the Title IX office. Find out who that person is. Go talk to them, right? There is something that you can do to get you working toward the solution for this problem. Yeah. And I, I know I've said it twice already, but I want to emphasize it again because when it comes time for you to address this, if you don't know already, it's too late. You know, I talk about having that teal folder in my cube that had all of those numbers in it. Just having that available gave me a whole lot of peace and confidence as I tried to help mentor those around me. So start today. Start today. Colin, today. I'm going to do it. I know. I'm not calling you out. I'm emphasizing the todayness of the today. Today. But you're welcome to call me out, Reed, because we should be drinking our own medicine here. 100%. I'm just lucky that I actually work with Mia daily. So I got a little bit of a pass there. But I do like this idea of, hey, every time you PCS, is that on your checklist? Because I guarantee it's not on your in-processing checklist, right? There's all sorts of normal in-processing briefs, but I'm not certain that's always one that's on there. Maybe it should be. And maybe you should put that on your own personal checklist, right? Figure out who these folks are and where they are. I agree with you, Reed. And I think that is a really good place for us to end this discussion, knowing that that is not the end. And we invite everyone who is listening to this episode to listen to it again. We invite you to share it with other people help others be part of the solution for our Air Force, for our nation, for the people around us who we care deeply about. Let's put an end to sexual assault. Here, here. And want to do again a hearty shout out to Mia Keith Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. If you want to get in touch with Mia, please reach out to us on our various social media platforms or our Gmail account. We're happy to get you in touch. Again, we want to emphasize this is not the appropriate reporting forum. You've been victimized or know people who have. We want to make sure that we can get you the help you need. We're going to put some things in the show notes that can help you get in contact with the right folks for that type of thing. And with that, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Commission Ed.